The only thing I don't like about his stat block is he doesn't have his Bane arrows anymore. Oh no, he doesn't have his Bane arrows. <laughs> oh no. How do you feel about that, Shane? I feel great. <laughs> Screw him. I hate that guy. He shot me with a Bane arrow once. <laughs> he did do that. Live from the Mundangerous Field Office of the Kornberg Chronicle here in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 225 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing the newest release for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, Eberron, Rising from the Last War. We'll walk you through it cover to cover and let you know whether it's worth adding to your collection. This week... Total Party Thrill is brought to you by D&D Beyond. It is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. Yep, you can use D&D Beyond to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. Yeah, like using it to create homebrew Eberron monsters that you can then send against your party before there's actually an Eberron sourcebook in 5th edition. Uh-huh, or if you wait like probably like a week, you can just get the Eberron sourcebook right there in D&D Beyond and not have to enter any custom things at all. And just print them out uh, or just run them right from your computer. Of course, there's also lots of awesome content available for free, like the D&D Basic Rules, articles from great writers like James J. Heck, and awesome videos from Todd Kenrick. And the team is always updating the site with new features, like the Encounter Builder, which is now in beta. So if that sounds interesting, you can get it at dndbeyond.com. So just a programming note for this week, uh, there is no Dynasty Unwarranted recap and there will be no Character Creation Forge. Uh, sorry for those of you who are looking for those. Uh, this book is 320 pages, so we're just going to give it a full review. Oh my god, it's such a big book. <laughs> Huge book. <laughs> Alright, so this is the sixth new RPG source book from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition D&D. Eberron, Rising from the Last War. It is finally here. Finally. We've been waiting for years for an Eberron book in 5e. Mm-hmm. This is also the third campaign setting book uh, for 5e after the Sword Coast Adventures Guide in 2015 and then last year's Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. I would say this is the first true campaign setting book. I agree with you. And it is the second Eberron product. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, okay, we're going to get into all of that. Probably most appealing to longtime D&D players, this is the first time that we're getting a classic campaign setting from previous editions of D&D that isn't Forgotten Realms. And like you said, we haven't even really gotten Forgotten Realms as a campaign setting. Right. We just keep getting adventures set in Forgotten Realms. So we uh, we basically started out as an Eberron show uh -huh. way back in the day. Uh, so we've been through a lot of this. We played a lot of uh, Eberron games uh, from 3.5 all the way to 5th edition homebrew. Uh, and if you want to check out the recap of that first game, I believe it starts in episode four and goes through like 73. So oh, I think it's like episode one, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like you said, this is a massive 320 page tome of a book. Uh, it comes complete with a full color folded map of the continent of Corvair in the very back that you tear out and unfold. Uh, it is the version from fourth edition, which honestly I think looks a little bit better. It's the better version, right? Yeah. It's yeah. just like, Little, little easier to read everything. Yeah. This book is twice as long as Sword Coast Adventures Guide and Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. So if you are an owner of the Wayfinder's Guide, then you will find that 
This book is more refined, more in-depth. It adds a section specifically aimed at GMs, uh, includes a short adventure, and then also a bestiary that includes a lot of high-level sort of iconic villains and threats in Eberron. Yeah. So as we're going through the book, we'll try to call out places where things are very different from Wayfinders. Uh, and then at the end, we'll we'll give our opinion on whether you should buy this if you already have Wayfinders. So I guess let's start at the beginning. This is cover to cover. Shane, like uh, all of these books, there are two different covers for Rising. Uh-huh. You are holding one. I am holding the other. Yeah. Which one are you holding? Uh, I am holding the standard cover. It. It has a Warforged wizard and a Talenta halfling and a clawfoot dinosaur exploring the labyrinth in the demon wastes. This is exactly what the labyrinth should look like, actually. Uh-huh. You have a uh, good and iconic piece of Eberron art on your cover. By Wesley Burt. I like it great, and there was there was an initial preview of another piece of art that is in the book that was going to be the cover. People sort of complained about it. I didn't like it very much. And so I'm much happier with this cover. What about the one you've got? Uh, I have the limited edition, the one that you can only get from your local gaming store. It has the sort of like shiny metallic kind of holographic look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it depicts on the front, uh, Sharn, like the city skyline uh, in front of a setting sun with like airships kind of flying across in silhouette. And then on the back, it has a warforged holding perhaps the dumbest sword I've ever seen in my life, but I won't hold that against it. So how do you feel about the cover? I think when I look at the cover, I thought this was a Dune book and Eberron is difficult to read on the cover. It actually annoyed me. <laughs> This is so interesting. I think this is the first time where you haven't liked the special cover more. And I very specifically love the special cover. It's actually probably like one of the few physical books I would I would probably keep around. I, I think it looks too sci-fi. Um, like it, it doesn't have that pulpy noir feel to it. It has a sci-fi post-apocalyptic feel to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm actually getting a little bit of a Blade Runner vibe. And I really kind of like that because Eberron is also noir. Yeah, but it's not punky at all. Eberron? Oh yeah, no, I think it's totally like magic punk. Uh, that's not I don't think that's especially true. <laughs> do you want to do you want to switch books? <laughs> no, I mean this is fine. It, it matches <laughs> the spine of it matches my bookshelf. <laughs> it's it's fine. I, I I will say like it is a cool rendition of Sharn um, and definitely a different take it does not match the art inside of any of the towers in Sharn so that is also a little weird but that's just true of all the art yeah I, we'll get into that all right so let's crack this thing open uh, it starts off with an introduction welcome to Eberron uh, we covered pretty much all of the high level stuff about Eberron in our episode on the Eberron campaign setting back in episode 33 it lays out that it's a world of magic that is just coming out of a great war and explains that it's heavy on themes of pulp action and noir intrigue. Uh, You'll recognize the regrets and debts table from Wayfinders. It's a nice way to sort of set the scene. You know, why is it that you owe somebody 200 gold pieces? Or like, what regret do you have from fighting in the last war? Right. And then there's also logistical info, like how much does it cost for, you know, services of particular dragon marked houses? And that's it for the intro. On to chapter one, which is, I think, probably most of the mechanical meat of this book because it's on character creation. 
So like with most of these books, it lays out all of the races, like not just the Eberron specific races, but all of the PHB races and talks about how you might play a dwarf or a, a human in Eberron specifically. So one thing that's kind of cool about this is that it does mention up front um, the goblinoids as well as orcs, like not just um, not just half orcs, but full orcs, um, mm-hmm. as well as the like the new Eberron races. So let's talk about some of the mechanics of these races. Uh, a lot of these will be familiar if you own Wayfinders. There are some definite changes. Changelings get plus two to charisma and plus one to any stat of your choice. You can shape change into a creature you've seen. You get some bonus skill proficiencies. But from Wayfinders, you lose Unsettling Visage and your advantage on deception checks in order to avoid discovery. I am disappointed by this because I don't think changelings needed a nerf. And I think th- historically, from 3rd edition on through 4th and now 5th, uh, you keep getting changelings who are weaker than they should be because for some reason the designers think that change shape is a mechanically powerful ability when really it's mostly roleplay. Yeah, but I don't know. It has... Uh... I know you guys said this, but I feel like changelings also can just circumvent a lot of problems in campaigns and like they end up with, able to drive a lot of like narrative that they can't necessarily... like mirror in any other race except that mechanically you can't now because you don't have an advantage on that deception check (laughs) and so like one failed check throughout an entire campaign and your cover is blown and like you now don't have that identity anymore and that was always one of the problems is you're like okay i can change shape but i also have to invest in charisma and i have to take deception and i probably have to take expertise like you have to be a changeling rogue (laughs) yeah i mean you get you get deception for free though yeah but anyone can still roll a three (laughs) i'm sure so for elves, I like that they delineated that an Aranal elf uses the high elf subclass and a Valinar elf uses the wood elf subclass. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so what's the difference between Aranal and Valinar? Uh, Aranal elves are magic-focused. They uh, deal in a like positive form of necromancy, and they live off on their own continent with their own like thousands-of-year-old both religion and society, whereas the Valinar are basically skirmishers who are holding land on Corvair but not actually running a government. Uh, this also comes with the um, the Revenant Blade Feet which is the uh, like double-sided sword that is a, an elf weapon. Um, this allows uh, elves to use that as a finesse weapon as well as get a bonus to dexterity or strength um, and a plus one bonus to armor class. This is one of those things where in Wayfinders, there were abilities that the weapon itself had and then abilities that the feet gave you. And now they're sort of different in this book. But if you add them all together, <laughs> it ends up being the same thing. Right. Uh, in Goblinoids, you don't get any mechanical changes from Volo's Guide to Monsters. And I don't think they needed them, except for all the alignments just shift uh, away from evil so they're no longer like neutral evil they're you know neutral good or you know just chaotic neutral right as it should be in Eberron where all morality is gray we also at this point in the book see the first bit of art of a uh, that I can remember at least of a character with an amputated limb yeah we're gonna get a lot more of those this is the Zil gnome right yeah it, it's interesting because it's it's just not there um, and there's a ton of stuff around prosthetics and like actually like weaponized prosthetics mm-hmm. uh, through like artificer stuff. But here we have like kind of the first example of, you know, in a setting that just emerged from war, 
that is a thing that happens. Um, and it's just like kind of casually left out there on the page and, and not really drawn any attention to. Also, a little interesting that it's a Zill Gnome is the first example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is something that we didn't even get in the 3.5 book, The Forge of War, which was just solely about playing games during the war. Yeah. So it's it's interesting like that there's a, you know, a little more representation in the art. Mm-hmm. The next change that we really get is Kalishtar. These are the humans who are inhabited by quarry spirits and are fighting the good fight against the Dreaming Dark. Now, instead of getting uh, the option of having high charisma or high wisdom, you just straight up get a plus two to wisdom and a plus one to charisma. Your dual mind is actually very good right now. You get advantage on all wisdom saving throws all the time without having to use any actions. Yep, and then you still get your resistance to psychic damage, uh, but Mind Link has been changed. Yeah, it'll last for up to an hour now, so you can just pick another person who you can speak telepathically to, and and I I would assume in many family units, probably you just always have a Mind Link with one particular person. You can, you know, shift it around to a different person, but you can only have one person at a time, so you still can't create, like, a a telepathic uh, conversation among a group. Right. And then you lose your advantages on a particular skill. Mm, I, I think on balance, the Kalistar is about the same because advantage on all wisdom saving throws is so strong. So now we get to the orc. Um, it, of course, mentions half orcs, but when it gets to the full stat block for orcs, uh, we get a much more playable orc. Oh my god, because the other one in Volos was unplayable. Because it has an intelligence penalty. Yeah, and was just straight up worse than the regular half-orc. Half-orc, yeah. <laughs> so you still have plus two to strength, uh, plus one to con, no intelligence penalty. And I I really like this change. They used to have an ability called menacing that just gave them training in the intimidation skill. Now it's primal intuition, which fits much better with the orc's connection to druids and nature uh, in Corvair. And you can choose animal handling, insight, medicine, nature, perception, or survival. You can also still pick an imitation if you want. I, I do think it's a little weird. Um, they get the aggressive trait, which mm. as a bonus action, they can move their speed towards an enemy. Um, but they don't actually like have anything that's reflective of them being better in combat the way that half-orcs do. So that just feels a little bit strange that half-orcs are the like strictly better combatants than orcs. Right, you don't have um, the ability to stay on your feet, even when reduced to zero. Or the brutal critical. Right. I kind of wish they went even further with this eberronization of orcs and gave them a wisdom bonus. Mm. So that they would just be really good druids and rangers. Better druids. Yeah. Yeah. Although, (laughs) there's like five races in this book that get wisdom bonuses now. Right. All right, next up, shifters. Now all the stat bonuses come from your your choice of shifter subrace. If you're a beast hide, you get plus two constitution, plus one strength. Longtooth gets strength and dex. Swift stride gets dex and charisma, and you lose your static bonus walking speed. Sorry. And wild hunt gets wisdom and dexterity. Wild hunt does lose their uh, tracking ability, uh, but when you shift, you now also negate advantage on attacks against you. And there's some kind of goofy it's kind of goofy shifter art honestly yeah it's new (laughs) (laughs) which is the nicest thing i can say about it (laughs) he's he's dressed like a for (laughs) bulg right of of course like shifters are the um the race of like lycanthrope bloods Mm -hmm. right they're the descendants of lycanthropes who have more or less been eradicated from eberron 
And then we get to Warforged, who are the like living mechanical constructs of Eberron, the like Iron Man, the literal Iron Man walking around. Oh, actually, yeah. Speaking of Iron Man, that's my one problem with the standard cover is that the Warforged wizard has a, a cape like Doctor Strange. He also has like a hole in his chest for some reason that's glowing exactly like Iron Man. Uh, and he, he also has the glow on his palm, too, that looks like Iron Man's little blasters. Yeah. So if I didn't know Eberron looking at this, I'd be like, oh, is that a suit? That's probably a suit, right? Mm. It's not a suit. It's a person. It also looks a lot like a Necron with blue instead of green. Oh, it totally does. You're right. All right. Now, Warforged lose the sub races. Uh, I heard Keith Baker talk about this. He says um, the other changes made it so that sub races weren't necessary. And I find it a much more elegant solution than the sort of weirdness of armor shifting that mm-hmm. we had before. Yeah. So, so they get plus two to constitution. And then I love this plus one to any stat of your choice because there's so many different models of Warforged. Right. So that just reflects what you were built for. Mm-hmm. Um, like always you have poison resistance and then you don't eat drink or breathe uh you're immune to disease you don't have to sleep all that stuff and now you just get a flat plus one to ac which again is very simple um you're made of metal and wood right right you can put on armor but you need to attach it to as a component so it takes an hour for you to attach it or an hour for you to take it off that is the kind of flavor that explains how to just be a more normal character, <laughs> which I think is fine. I totally agree with you. Um, and then, of course, you'll also choose one skill and one tool proficiency, uh, which I think was like the uh, Warforged Envoy, right? Right, exactly. It used to be one of the sub races that was kind of a diplomat or was sent out to do a, maybe like a quieter mission. I do like that you can you can just sort of pick that now. And if you know if you're still like a big burly fighter Warforged, that's great. You can pick like land vehicles, you know? Because, like, you were a tank commander. Right. Um, or, like, if you are, you know, a, an infiltrator or something like that, you take uh, take stealth. Mm-hmm. And then that reflects that you have, like, you know, very finely machined gears, you know, and, and well-maintained. Yeah. And, or you, I mean, you can take Arcana and be a Cyforged. You can take Deception and be, I don't know, one of the early models that was supposed to be, like, uh, an infiltrator plant. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, no discussion of race in Eberron is complete without talking about dragon marks. So, of course, these are the magical tattoos, basically, that randomly appear based on your bloodline um, that give you certain magical powers, right? They're, of course, tied to dragons, which is why they're called dragon marks. And then um, all of the dragon mark houses, the corporations of Eberron, basically, are built up around people who have these marks and... Um, control their use right if you're not familiar with eberron this is how commerce works it's a magitech society where you know they have relatively modern conveniences actually trains and airships and you know public restrooms all powered by magic and much of that comes from npcs who have these different marks yeah they've they've industrialized magic basically Uh, i do love that we just get one straight page of a picture of all the marks you know like (laughs) yeah yeah you always like take a mark and you're like, oh, but what does it look like again? I know there's like a canonical way that it does look, I guess, but I don't know where that is. Also, though, they're all kind of dumb. <laughs> I mean, they are. These are exactly the same from um, third edition. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, just like in Wayfinders, 
all of the uh, dragon marked races are now sub races of the associated race. Yeah, so that's the other piece of this is because it's tied to bloodline, only certain races can manifest certain marks. Right, and now the mark replaces uh, your subrace. So instead of being a wood elf or a high elf, or in this case an Aranal elf or a Valinar elf, you would be an elf with the mark of shadow. There are no more uh, greater dragon mark feats. They took them out. Uh, instead, the marks work differently now. The marks give a skill or tool bonus, depending on you know the general abilities of uh, the house, and then one mm. or two spells that you can use each day. But in addition to that, spellcasters, like people who have spellcasting, like levels in a spellcasting class, also get a list of spells that go up to fifth level that they add to their spell list for all of their classes. And this is supposed to emulate the higher level mark abilities. It, it's not like spell-like abilities. You can't just cast these spells. You can only add it to uh, your spell list. Yeah, it's um, it's a compromise. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's not my favorite way to do it, but I think if you take dragon marks out of a feat chain, then this is probably a better way than than the greater mark but it is a little frustrating that houses that don't have like a lot of natural magical inclination to them now have to have ninth ninth level spellcasters in order to fully maximize their dragon marks yeah i agree with you and the whole point is that you're supposed to have like relatively low a, a lot of relatively low level casters right so the first thing you'll probably notice is that the ability scores for all of these subraces or most of these subraces have been changed to make them basically ideal for whatever task a particular house performs. So the Mark of Detection, House Madani, Half-Elves get a plus two to Wisdom instead of plus two Charisma. Humans in Denaeth, which have Mark of Sentinel and they work as bodyguards, get plus two Con. Uh, Mark of Passage, humans in House Orion who like run the trains and like, the teleportation networks get plus two to Dexterity, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think I like this when I saw it in Wayfinder's Guide, but I think I do like this better because this does sort of reflect like, not that you're necessarily a different race, but that like, because you have a dragon mark, your natural inclination is towards like the ability to use your dragon mark better, right? right? Like, so that, that feels a little better than like some of the sort of like sub race override stuff that was going on previously. I agree with you. I, I like that it makes you mechanically good at the thing you're supposed to be good at whereas like when when marks were sometimes just a story consideration you would have someone who had a mark and were in were in a house who did a particular task but were pretty bad at it yeah yeah you get skill bonuses that are also pretty fitting like a d4 to arcana if you're in house caneth uh if you're in vidalis you get bonuses to animal handling and nature your bonus spell lists are usually utility spells, and that makes sense. It's pretty fitting for commerce. Like you can put these on an NPC and be like, "All right, what is it that the the house could offer with a relatively low level spellcaster to the party?" Uh, although remember that some houses their commerce is spycraft or teleportation or being a bodyguard. So there are spells that are very good in combat. And I'll say these sub races are not so strong that every min-maxer is going to go, oh, I definitely want to take a dragon mark race instead of a regular race. And that was a problem in, like, 4th edition especially. Mark of Storm was super strong for particular builds, so suddenly you had this, like, proliferation of people who were like, eh, I'm going to be a Lorander half-elf. Why? Because, uh, I don't know, I'll come up with a reason, but I really want the Mark of Storm. Exactly. 
this is uh this is i think the first place where we start to see the clashing art styles laid out in front of you mm. because every single one of these has like one page per dragon mark and they have a you know a piece of art for an example character for each of them and so they're all next to each other and you see like the art style from third edition meets the art style from fourth edition meets the art style from fifth edition and spoiler they're all different and it doesn't really hang together super well yeah if you look at some of the pieces of art individually they look perfectly fine there are others though where you're like all right that was originally painted to be this particular mark because you can see someone has a big dragon mark and it's the right mark right mm-hmm. but there are others where it really feels like there was an old piece of art and they just put a dragon mark on somebody's forehead <laughs> and we're like there you go that works <laughs> or like they have an open palm so we'll just put it there oh my god this book has so many dragon marks on palms and dragon marks on foreheads and it <laughs> it just makes me think that it was all recycled and a lot of these you can definitely tell they're recycled because it, it just fades off the edge of a much larger painting and then like there's like half a character's head somewhere else mm-hmm. and you can tell that it was it was like a, a panorama it's uh eberron through the ages of course poor uh, house kandarik doesn't even get a picture of a dwarf <laughs> they just get a picture of a vault it is a cool vault though house uh galanda the main person is like a an armored human <laughs> right and, and like the halfling's like looking up at her like uh, hi, I'm so glad you came to my establishment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't actually even see his dragon mark, to be honest. I, I think it's completely repurposed. That's They were like, we need a halfling who looks like he runs an inn. <laughs> right. Uh, I will say, I do think the mechanical abilities of the marks uh, do make a character feel like they're part of a unified house, but it's mm. unfortunate that they're much better for spellcasters, and it's especially unfortunate that they're much better for spellcasters who are going to play against type. If you are playing a spellcaster who doesn't already get these spells, then the the expanded spell list is much better. But like if you're already playing a healer, the mark of healing doesn't do much for you. It just adds more healing stuff that you already had. Exactly, because it's not like they're always prepared. They're just on your list. Right. Then we get aberrant dragon marks, and they have changed a little from Wayfinders as well. These are actually still a feat. You can just take it whenever you want as long as you don't have a different dragon mark. Right. It starts by giving you plus one constitution, uh, as well as a cantrip from the sorcerer list, and then you learn a first level spell that you can use once per short rest. And then you can do this weird thing where you can spend a hit die when you cast that spell to, like, you basically flip a coin, you either gain some temp HP, or you do some damage to a random creature within 30 feet of you. I don't know. That doesn't really seem worth it. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem strong. It just seems like a a weird way to identify aberrants, right? Right. Which is weird, because they've been in hiding for like 1,800 years. So you- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, they clearly never use this ability. Right. <laughs> Um, so the interesting part of this, I think, is a, a mechanic that I don't recall ever seeing in 5th edition before, mm-hmm. which is that at higher levels, you have the optional rule to grow into a greater aberrant dragon mark, in which case, from level 10 on, you roll each level a 10% chance of gaining an epic boon. I like this a lot, because canonically, like, there was a war fought 1800 years ago with people who had aberrant dragon marks and they had ridiculous powers. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. What's weird about it is like, there's no guarantee that you get it. 
Um, right. On they, average, you get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very unlikely you won't get it by level 20, but like, it does seem like if you get to level 20 with an aberrant mark, you should just get that boon at level 20, right? I mean, if I was running this and someone was like, oh, great, I get to roll, I would probably like have a conversation with them. And, you know, one, I want to know what boon you're potentially interested in, right? It doesn't mean you'll get that boon because part of the thing about aberrant marks is that sometimes it, it's a curse or whatever, right? Right. But like, I don't really want someone to get the boon at 20 because then you have two sessions with it. Yeah, I know. It's like you almost kind of have to get it in like the 10 to 13 range to yeah. feel like it was worth it. And I would probably at like 13 or 14, if they hadn't gotten already, just be like, you get it or like, yeah. I'm going to start rolling it. Right. Something magical happens and like it. Yeah. Activates. Yeah. The next time you like die or, or like almost die, right. It manifests or grows or, or something. Like if you're in the presence of a high enough level spell being cast, like something weird happens or yeah, I don't know, whatever. Um, totally agree. The other thing is it, it does cost you a hit die to gain that boon, which like by level 13, who cares? <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, it's, you're probably losing like 10 hit points off the top, but I don't know a small little price to pay, I guess. And then we get one new background, house agent. It just gives connections within the house, a safe place to stay. It's basically like faction agent or, you know, folk hero. So then what we're really here for, the first ever new class for 5th edition. This is the 13th class in D&D, which makes a lot of sense given the history of Eberron. Yeah, it's the Mark of Death. <laughs> yes, all artificers have the Mark of Death. It's canon. Uh-huh. So, if you don't know, an artificer is an intelligence-based half-caster who channels magic through their tools in order to create wondrous contraptions or weapons on the battlefield. Yeah, so they have this whole thing where, like, as an artificer, they create magical items, they tinker with mechanical magical items, they sort of have, um, some of them are, like, more alchemist-focused, but, like, they always kind of have just, like, the random assortment of the right tool for the job has sort of always been their flavor, um, and they're very like into research for industrial purposes rather than for purely arcane purposes. Mm-hmm. So at first level, you'll get a, an ability called magical tinkering. This is basically just like a prestidigitation, like a permanent prestidigitation that you can cast on a small number of objects at a time. It's weird to start with a ribbon ability, um, but I kind of love this one. It like really gets you into the flavor of it, right? Right. <laughs> Like, I just really want to know why I have a, a music box that permanently emanates the sound of the beach right. within 10 feet. Because <laughs> I love the beach. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so the other thing that I really like in the magical tinkering is that it gives you, as a GM, like, look at that and think, oh, right. Anybody who's trained as an artificer can create these things. So when you see, like, you can create a static image on a surface or up to 25 words of text, like, that means when you walk around Sharn, you should be seeing advertising in shop windows that is, like, you know, kind of carefully spelled out, like, basically neon signs, things like that, right? For a few bucks, you can probably get an artificer to leave one of their objects for you absolutely and if there is just a a random small magical trinket which you should be sprinkling liberally throughout an eberron game some artificer made that yeah and may at some point unmake it right (laughs) (laughs) all right so your spell list you get spells up to fifth level it's a pretty utility focused list with some elemental damage, which makes sense for a class that really made a name for itself on the battlefield during the last war. That is a little deceptive though, because every subclass adds 
more damage through its like subclass spells. Right. Uh, now, artificers have always been a support and healing class, so it's good that there's a strong baseline. Look, look at some highlights to the list. There's Guidance, which is amazing. Cure Wounds, Absorb Elements, Arcane Lock, Magic Weapon, Dispel Magic, Haste, Revivify, Greater Restoration. Th- these are things you want your uh, support caster to have with you when you're going into war. Yeah, there's also like the the utility spells that you never really prepare are all there you know things like jump and feather fall like mm-hmm. that all make a lot of sense of like oh yeah no they're springy boots or oh yeah my backpack has wings to help me glide to the ground right and make perfect sense for npc artificers who just have a job right exactly you will also get expertise in all of the tools that you're proficient with so you know thieves tools tinker tools uh, some artisans tools like alchemist supplies something like that You get an ability called Flash of Genius, which lets you add your intelligence modifier to an ability check or saving throw that you are making or that you can see someone else making. And you can do that intelligence modifier number of times per day. This is very, very good. Mm -hmm. This is super good. It's, for most levels, going to be better than having expertise. And it stacks with expertise. Yeah, and you can save a friend with it. Mm-hmm. And it's just good for saving throws, so it, it doesn't go to waste on, like, adventure day instead of, you know, bum around town making skill checks day. Yeah, absolutely. It's I dodge dragon breath day. Yeah. yeah. Or you dodge dragon breath day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great warlord ability. It's a great leader ability. Uh, and also, it keys off your main stat. Most abilities like this key off a secondary stat, which makes them meh useful. Mm-hmm. And then you can store spells inside items and then anybody can use that item and they can use it a bunch of times before the spell wears off this is basically how artificers make relatively temporary magic items yeah uh, up to twice your intelligence modifier times like that is uh, 10 casts of a lot of spells is a lot yeah Uh, you'll eventually get use magic device so you can ignore all of the requirements on using particular magic items And eventually, it scales up uh, as you increase in level, but eventually you can attune up to six magic items rather than just the regular three. And then your capstone will be Soul of Artifice, which gives you a plus one bonus to all saving throws for every magic item you have attuned. Mm -hmm. So congratulations, you make your own attuned items because we haven't even talked about infusions yet. Um, You will always have six of them, I promise. You have a plus six to all saves. You are now... Like, your weakest stat still makes you unlikely to get hit. Yep. And then even if you do get hit, you can end one of your uh, current infusions to drop to one HP instead of zero. (laughs) Exactly. So probably three times, maybe four. Mm -hmm. Um, So should we skip ahead and talk about infusions before we talk about the specialists? Yeah, I think that'll be good. It's a lot like uh, you're picking these a lot like you pick Warlock invocations mm-hmm. where like everybody gets them and you can sort of mix and match whatever you find interesting on your artificer the, the nice thing though is like you know so many of them you know there's only like i don't know maybe like 14 or 15 options and you know up to 10 of them so you're not making like a huge sacrifice in these in these decisions well we'll get into it you, you can really go deep too so yep. you get a limited number of known infusions they're like recipes for magic items and on a long rest you can imbue a number of items up to your intelligence modifier with one of these infusions some of the highlights on the list there is enhanced arcane focus or enhanced defense or enhanced weapon all of which will make a plus one or a plus two item that you can use or you can give to somebody else 
Yep, Homunculus Servant will also stand out to people who loved that subclass or that. Oh, that was a fourth edition path, right? But either way, like having your little mechanical familiar, you can create that at sixth level. Mm-hmm. And it scales. Like this is a familiar that scales. It gets bonuses based on your proficiency bonus. Right. Also, it has evasion, so it doesn't immediately dive to the first fireball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, repeating shot is going to remove the loading property from uh, a weapon. I think usually you'll use it for a crossbow, but I actually really like the idea of a halfling artificer who uses it on their sling. <laughs> and it's just like twirling a piece of cord and a rock shows up in it. There's also a radiant weapon, which gives you the chance to blind an opponent that you hit, which is not a super common quality get, that gets added, but actually super helpful. Mm-hmm. And then the one you can go very, very deep on is replicate magic item. So you'll pick one item from a pretty big list of magic items in the DMG uh, or in, or I guess, later in this book that you can like make things like goggles of night at low levels or a cloak of elven kind or eventually things like braces of archery or even like a belt of hill giant strength when you're high enough level. Or um, an arcane propulsion arm. Because why wouldn't you do that? Why would you not have a, an auto-punching ranged arm? <laughs> or two of them. <laughs> exactly. Well, who needs regular arms anymore? I'm Dr. Octopus now. <laughs> uh, and then there's our uh, sort of like standard items like uh, resistance armor. Or I also love that now we finally have the returning weapon. Why don't we have magic weapons that return to you when you throw them? Because you don't have an artificer. Right. Um, I also like you can create headband of intellect at level 10. Mm-hmm. Um, which frees you up to take feats, uh, actually, right? You're only giving up a plus one intelligence to try that. Until you get to very high levels, and then you're like, oh, well, I, I do want yeah, that. Yeah, I've made I'm, mistakes. <laughs> and I know I made mistakes because I'm very smart. Right. <laughs> I do like the idea of an artificer being like, God, everybody I work with is so dumb. Wait a minute. <laughs> Oh, I can fix this. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For me? Oh, you shouldn't have. Can imagine opening a present and it's a headband of intellect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fix you. What are you trying to say? Well, if you put that on, you'll know. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about the artificer specialists, all the subclasses. Mm-hmm. So first off, there's the alchemist. This was actually like the least popular version or or subclass for the artificer in uh the wizards of the coast survey but i'm very glad it's in here because it's basically the standard artificer Mm -hmm. so you'll get pretty good spells like healing word blight death ward cloud kill and you get raised dead uh you have a, a kind of wonky ability that i don't really like very much called experimental elixir you like concoct something and then it has random beneficial effects but a lot of them are like you have better movement which is not going to help an ally who's unconscious you get to add your intelligence bonus to some damage, or you can add that bonus to the HP uh, that is regained by the target of one of your spells. Yep. And then at ninth level, you will get the ability to like add healing onto whatever your experimental elixir ends up being. Eventually, you get resistance to acid and poison damage, and you're immune to the poison condition because you've just spent so much time, I guess, like making hats with mercury. <laughs> <laughs> And by 15th level, you will be able to cast Lesser Restoration, Greater Restoration, and Heal each once per day. So that's cool. But I think the Artillerist is cooler. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is an artificer who specializes in damage at range. Uh, go figure. This is a, an art, an artificer who has a weird cube in his pocket, throws it on the ground, and out pops a gun. <laughs> that walks. <laughs> the turret artificer is what I'm saying. All right, so you get spells like shield, scorching ray, fireball, wall of fire, cone of cold, wall of force. These are all amazing spells. And like you said, you get the Eldritch Cannon, which can come in three varieties. The Force Ballista, which fires very long-distance uh, force bolts. The Flamethrower and a little temp HP generator, which I can attest is very frustrating when you're a GM. Oh, yeah. I mean, that protector, like, it has to go down, right? Because it generates so much temp HP, it just negates any type of area effect spell that goes on. It, it gives everybody just so much more life round over round. Mm-hmm. It, it is a very solid choice. And, of course, you can eventually just make them explode. <laughs> right. Uh, you will also get an Arcane Firearm. I like that it's very clear that it's called an arcane firearm, but it is a wand. Um, it basically will give you a bonus D8 to damage cast using it. All right, the artillerist is cool, but I think the battlesmith is even cooler. Okay, so the battlesmith is the uh, the frontline artificer, right? Where the artillerist is going to be kind of sit in the back, throw out two turrets, um, which also, by the way, are, you know, fortified positions in and of themselves that you will stand behind and and be safe slinging spells like the battlesmith runs up with his mechanical companion and like swings his giant weapon while his animal companion does better than a ranger oh my god totally better than a ranger like this should just be the ranger this should be the beastmaster ranger Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i i do like the art uh for this subclass i mean it's a it's a little goofy, honestly, but it's like a metal St. Bernard, and I, it's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a metal St. Ber- Bernard and a woman holding a giant maul that's like glowing blue. Um, it has a very like, it's, it's got a very like neat kind of like Magitech look to it. Right, and like her face is covered in soot except for like the goggle area. The goggles, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no doubt that she's a frontline fighter. Right. <laughs> Uh, all right, so you get a construct companion, which is a very good companion. It's a steel defender. It can take you know whatever form you really want, and it scales with your proficiency bonus. It stays useful. It has a bunch of hit points. Yeah, I mean, its its main thing is that it can't be surprised, and it has the um, the protection fighting style ability mm-hmm. of using its reaction to cause disadvantage. Um, which means it, it, like, it has to be dealt with before you can effectively be targeted, uh, even though it is rather lackluster in terms of an actual threat on its own. I mean, it is a St. Bernard because it can also three times per day like repair either itself or somebody else. Like You, se- you send them out and like, go, go help them, go help them. So the, the way it works like mechanically is it has its own turn on your initiative after you act. If you use your bonus action, you can give it an order, which can be like attack or, you know, defend or dash or whatever, uh, which includes useful things like searching or um, I would argue probably th- simple things like pouring a uh, pouring a potion down someone's throat, something like that. Yeah, I think this is an elegant way to handle the action economy issue. Also, if it can't be surprised, I would say I can't be surprised. Like, it right. doesn't sleep, and it's my buddy. 
so it can take the help action, uh, which means as a bonus action, you can use your um, use your hound to help anything, right? So the rogue will very reliably sneak attack. The uh, um, the paladin will like have you know a second chance to crit on that smite. All those types of things. Yeah, and it doesn't suffer from the main issue of sending in your fam- in your familiar to use the help action, which is that they are extremely fragile. Uh, at level, I guess twelve, this thing has like sixty five hit points. Yeah, so its its hit points are its con mod plus your intelligence modifier plus five times your level. And I sure wish they had reversed the order of that math because you should not have to <laughs> apply order of operations to know what they intended. All right, so that's not all you get. You get spells like Shield, Aura of Vitality, Mass Cure, Banishing Smite. You also get Martial Weapon Proficiency, and and you can make attacks with magic weapons with your intelligence instead of strength or dexterity. And at 5th level, you get extra attack. Yeah. You're, you are great at smashing things. Um, then at ninth level, you'll get Arcane Jolt, which lets you either deal extra damage to a target, 2d6, or heal allies when you hit a target. And then that increases uh, later at level 14. I think there are going to be so many Artificer Dips to get three levels of Battlesmith to be able to attack with Intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I think Battlesmith is the new uh, Bladesinger. Totally. Right? And I don't need to be an elf or a half-elf from the Forgotten Realms. Now I can be a wizard who has evocation or you know abjuration or whatever and still be a melee combatant. No, this is cool. I'm I'm very excited about this. I think you will see it appear in a character creation forge coming soon. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> All right, that's the artificer. And now we get what I think is a pretty cool feature. Mm-hmm. Group patrons. Yeah, it's it's a little weird that this is in the uh PC section, but I guess I kind of understand why. Mm-hmm. Um the idea here is that um as a party, you have a benefactor. Uh, who kind of helps give you resources and then drive you forward on adventures or or whatever, right? Jobs to do or um, ideas to go follow up on, things like that. Yeah, I love the breadth of possible patrons. Like they can be an adventurer's guild, sure. It could be a crime syndicate, but it can also be things like a newspaper. Like the Korenberg Chronicle can go send you out as like, I guess a reporter, but also just like an adventuring party who's accompanying a reporter or investigating rumors of something for them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it could be a dragon-marked house, e- even churches. Like It's pretty much whatever you want it to be. It's literally Sora Kel is in here. Yeah. Like the, uh, <laughs> the original hag. It could be, you could be working for an actual country. You could serve the Draconic Prophecy, or I love this as well, you can be your own patron. Like You can just start your own organization. Mm-hmm. And then it just gives you like slight bonuses to downtime activity around like conduct business. Mm-hmm. So each patron that it lists, each group patron that it lists uh, has a table of like, you know, assignments and contacts and you can roll on those or you can choose or they're just, you know, suggestions. And then there are suggestions for the different roles that each person in the party can play if you are an adventuring party serving this particular kind of patron. Right. So it's like an example of what types of thieves might you need if you're working for a thieves guild? Mm -hmm. You know, you might need some muscle. You might need um, the like safe cracker. You might need the uh, second story guy, you know? Right. I think you'll probably need 11, 11 people. (laughs) Yeah. 11 people easily, (laughs) maybe 12, sometimes 13 (laughs) and most recently eight (laughs) worked fine. It worked fine. 
Uh, so yeah, you get some small patron benefits, mostly like here's how much you can expect to get paid, and here are the kind of people that your patron can introduce you to. And then we get a pretty detailed description of one patron of each kind, and then quite a bit of advice on how you can customize this to make it a different patron in the same vein. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is actually like a weirdly deep dive into a certain number of organizations that don't really get a lot of coverage elsewhere in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also talks a little bit about um, their rivals or like, you know, comparable foils to them or something like that that gives you a little bit more of a branching out for what might come in there so like there's a lot of lore that gets handled in a very short amount of time around this section yeah it's one of the most compact sections honestly not in terms like it is dense and i like that it's efficient for Mm -hmm. sure uh this is something i would have expected to see in like in xanathar's guide to everything Mm -hmm. yeah uh it kind of belongs there and i have a feeling we're going to see people being like ah where were those patrons again Right. Okay, so chapter one, cool, like the player options. Let's move on to sort of the actual world of Eberron itself, because chapter two is the Corvair Gazetteer. Yeah, you get a high-level overview of each country in Corvair. I think there are 12, 13 of them. Talks about the governments, different bullet points on interesting trivia, and the characteristics of people who live there. It also, for each of these, covers like what are the large cities and the important locations in each of those, um, each of those nations. And then each section has a bit on the aftermath of the last war and how people are dealing with it in that particular country. Um, and this really plays up, and it's pretty. It's a strong theme throughout the book. Like the war ended two years ago, it affects everything. Then it covers the rest of Eberron. Uh, they get the same treatment as Corvair, but it's typically like one to two pages. Yeah. This is where you'll see things like Zendric, Argonesson, Sarlona, Arenal, Kyber. Um, you know, it, it's disappointing for me because Zendric is like one of the really cool, like pulpy things about Eberron is like, cool, there are the remains of like the giant civilization that were wiped out by the dragons. Like, go dive into that living jungle and like see if you can find anything of value and then also find your way out. Yeah, it does make it hard to play a Stormreach game. Mm-hmm. And then you get a little bit on religion. You get about a page of info on each of the major faiths, beliefs, rites, and temples on Corvair. I, I think that's probably appropriate given how deities are not particularly active in Eberron. Like with a couple exceptions, most of the things that are worshipped are not very present. And you get more information on things like the Blood of Vol, which you could be fighting against in like Order of the Emerald Claw sections. Like this book is not all the information is together because it's kind of divided into player sections and GM sections. Oh, don't don't worry. They made it up in the index, right? Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the this review, the index. Okay. <laughs> and and that's it. It's actually a pretty light treatise on uh, most of the continent. Then we're right into chapter three already, which is all about Sharn, City of Towers, which if you remember was the name of an entire third edition book. That's basically uh-huh. this, this whole book is like, hey, we did a book about this in third edition. Now we're giving it a chapter. And, and I think if I recall, uh, when we reviewed Wayfinder's Guide, we also mentioned how much of it was just Sharn, City of Towers pulled into a new format. You are not wrong. 
So there's not a lot to say about this chapter. It's a high-level guide to city living. You get a few maps. It talks about how much services cost, how you get around. One thing that does change, though, there's a table for what happens if you fall off a tower or off a bridge. And it's not feather fall triggers and you float gently down and may have to pay somebody 25 gold for like casting feather fall on you. It's uh, one in eight times you might fall hundreds of feet to your death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's even an aside. Um, so throughout the book up to this point, there have been little like, you know, aside caption texts that are written as like sort of article stubs from local newspapers mm-hmm. and like trashy newspapers. <laughs> yeah, 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 like tabloids. <laughs> and right next to that uh, table is something from the Sharn Inquisitive titled Watch for Falling Drunks. Um, what I like about this, because it is pretty stupid, but what I like about it is the end of it is a petition for everyone to just carry their feather tokens, which are common magic items that cast feather fall if you ever fall more than 20 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like, guys, we all have these consumables. Just keep them in your pocket, okay? Right. Don't text and drive. Don't, <laughs> exactly. don't get drunk without your feather token. Exactly. That, that, I mean, that's probably what the Artificer PSA advertising is, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, I, I will say if like if you go too deeply into this or roll on these tables too often, like Sharn just becomes like <laughs> like like a an artillery of bodies because yeah. like these are two thousand foot high towers, you know, somebody's falling at all times. Yeah, I, it does feel to me like those are flavor tables, not game use tables. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. I mean, it's a little filler, but it's it's fine. We got a what happens when you fall off a giant tower table? I'm into it. There's noteworthy locations in each district of the city and then a list of things to do. And then some information on the criminal guilds and the law enforcement in the city. The Sharn City Watch. Yeah, and this is definitely leaning into the idea that like you're in Sharn, you're going to play a noir game. You're going to be kind of on the edge of the law. You're going to be in that gray area where you're not necessarily a full-on criminal or you're not necessarily fully law enforcement, but maybe you're a private detective or, you know, an inquisitive, that kind of thing. Right. Here's a sergeant that we've set it out for you that you can get in trouble with. Um, I don't know if this was in Wayfinder's Guide, Ishan, so keep me honest, but I was very happy to see, um, I know one of your favorite little bits of dumb Eberron lore uh, the race of eight winds oh, is mentioned in a huge aside. Absolutely, one of my favorites. <laughs> it's it's a full column of text uh, about the race of eight winds beginning that then describes kind of what is the race of eight winds, which is of course a big like festival and celebration, a, an actual race amongst the the towers in Sharn. Flying. Oh yeah, sorry, a flying race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, chapter four begins the GM section of the book all about building Eberron adventures. And this is a section that does not show up in Wayfinders. I mean, group patrons didn't either, but this is like the first like full section that didn't show up before in 5e. Right. Uh, it's sort of, it's arranged like an encyclopedia uh, in alphabetical order by topic, a lot like the player's guide to Eberron uh, back from, I think it was third edition. Uh, it lists tools to help you run a pulp or a noir game. You know, it starts off with like, hey, tables of advice for using recurring villains or how to kick off your story or how to introduce a plot twist. Mm-hmm. I think it does a a good job early on of kind of setting the scope of campaigns in a way that makes sense. Like the idea of like there's two villain tables, for example. One is like the villain, you know, which is something nice and local. 
Um, and then the second is like the villain you don't understand, which tends to be something um, much more like broader reaching, which I, I think is always sort of like the the mark of like those pulp noir novels is like you start in with something that seems small and then you uncover something much bigger mm-hmm. and now now you're sucked up into it and you have to keep pulling at that thread or else somebody will just kind of finish you off you're getting too deep gumshoe yeah <laughs> <laughs> should have stayed home Muggsy. <laughs> Uh, so, like I said, this is laid out in encyclopedia fashion. It is mostly power groups that the party may come into conflict with, or it is important locations. So, like, the Orum, or the Cults of the Dragon Below, or how to deal with dragon-marked houses. There's cool stuff like the Warlords of Droam and the Daughters of Sorokal. So, like you mentioned earlier, this is the section where you get a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff in things that were very lightly touched upon in the Corvair Gazetteer. Mm-hmm. And, and also, like, this is you know, filling in the gap from Wayfinder's guy, which is like, okay, cool. Like I see all these different elements. Like what am I doing with them? Mm -hmm. Because for each of these, it talks a little bit about like, who are they? What are their objectives? um, What is like the place that you would run into them or whatever? And then it just gives you adventure hooks for Mm -hmm. how to use them. Right. right? And then some, some of them give you NPCs that uh, you might meet like while you're on a mission or while you're in this place. There is a section on the last war. It talks about the repercussions of the war and playing those up and having characters deal with them. Uh, and then there's a small section on playing a game during the last war. So, like, they basically took all of the Forge of War book from 3rd edition and shrunk it down to, like, six pages. Right. We get the Lord of Blades and the Warforge. There's some talk of the Lords of Dust. There is a pretty lengthy section on the Mornland, though, and, well, a lot's changed. So there's still the dead gray mists that separate the Mornland, like what is what remains of the blasted nation of Seer from the rest of Corvair. Except that now it's just a DC-15 survival check to get through the dead gray mists without getting lost. And if you fail, then you're just lost. You know, you can eventually find your way out. A first level, if I did my math right, a first level character with the mark of finding has a 50% chance of just waltzing through the dead gray mists into the moorland with no problem. I think that actually fits the tone of Eberron a little better than um, sometimes like the, <laughs> the pure labyrinthine nature of the dead gray mist has in the past, specifically because like they have living spells in the back of the book, right? They're relatively difficult CR and just getting through the mist is almost like a warning to avoid doing that. Um, and, like, because so much of Eberron is supposed to be, like, level one to five adventurers doing things, like, the fact that level two adventurers really didn't have a chance to go into the Mornland kind of made it, like, but a lot of people are running in there to scavenge and, like, try to extract things and, like, raid old facilities and ruins, right? So, like, to me, that was always a little bit of a logical disconnect. So, I don't mind this as much as I know it's you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hate it so much. Like, I, I know. For, for me, it was always, like, if you made it to the Moorland and back with stuff, you're, like, level five. And, like, everyone knows because it's, like, a badge of honor, you know? Mm. The other thing, though, I could deal with the Dead Grey Mists being different except that they completely changed healing. Healing now works just fine in the Moorland. So I don't I don't like that. Right. Like it's I, so I it's, agree. it's supposed to be difficult to to be there, right? Like, okay, you got through the mists, that's fine. 
And now you're like, oh, crap, I don't know what to do while we're here. These are living spells and, and we can't heal ourselves. Or some versions, sometimes it's been like healing is impeded and you get half healing. But like it very yeah. much calls out like that's a myth and a rumor. Healing mostly works fine inside the Moorland. Right. That, um, in, at least in our game, right, in like the Morning Glory campaigns, like that would be the rumor that it works fine. And you would quickly find out when you get there, oh, it absolutely does not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there, there's like a, a lore disconnect for me because the whole point is nothing rots there, you know? So I, mm -hmm. I, I guess there's still the no rotting thing, but that was always so closely tied with no healing to me, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so there is a, there's a piece of art in this section that um, actually like I had to read the caption for it and even so wasn't sure what I was looking at. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, there is a, a wonderful piece of art of Metrol um, uh -huh. with a large Warforge just kind of sitting on it, um, like in the middle of the city, looking shut down and dejected, um, which I assumed was a Warforge in like some city that had been magically resized. And then I saw that it was Metrol, which is the capital of Seer. Uh, and then I kept reading and I realized that is a Warforge Colossus, a 300 foot tall Warforge, like super weapon. And we actually get a map of here's how you go inside a Colossus and here's how you can control a Colossus. Right. So uh, what I like about this, um, because there is a thing whose name has fallen out of my head already, but there is a, a thing in Breland, right? They're, they have that massive floating super fortress that... Argonth. Yeah, Argonth, which like basically patrolled their border with Droam during the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just sort of went back uh, um, and forth. Right, but that was the like that was their super weapon, right? It was their big triumphant accomplishment of industry and partnership with Kenneth. And then at the same time, Kenneth has built the kaiju that will destroy it yeah. over there for Seer, <laughs> right? Like, so it's like, you know, I, they're both three hundred foot tall. Like, one is a battle barge, and the other is like, you know, monstrous warforged colossus. But like, I like that there are these weapons of mass destruction that are like sort of introduced into it. Um, even though they never fully got off the ground, though I, I suppose uh, Breland does still have theirs. I mean, they're excellent hooks for like putting in a mid-tier of an adventure, right? Get a Warforged Colossus up and working again. Yeah. My only question is, why hasn't the Lord of Blades already commandeered all of them? Uh, mm, he's missing something, obviously. Right. <laughs> he's too busy <laughs> trying to make a god. <laughs> Wouldn't a Colossus be a good starting point? Whatever. Uh. There's some mention of the outer planes, but very little. You get about three planes per page, so like four mm -hmm. four pages worth. Uh, there's some information on travel, elemental vessels. There's a really nice full-page D100 table of mysterious passengers you may meet on an elemental vessel. Things like a well-dressed human who sits awkwardly next to the wall, seemingly trying to avoid touching or being touched by anyone. This is one of those D100 tables with 50 entries equally weighted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Except uh, the last two, one of which is roll twice and those two people are about to get into a fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> or roll twice and those people are changelings. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> There's about 20 more pages of information about Sharn, specifically for GMs. Uh, you put this together with uh, City of Towers in Chapter 3, and you've got everything you need to run a Sharn game. Um, and then at the end of it, they have pieced all this together into a short, like, 15-page adventure called Forgotten Relics. Um, it is basically, like, a one-shot adventure for 
first level characters set in Sharn. Uh, basically, you find a hostage, you track the kidnapper, and then you have a big fight on the lightning rail, which honestly, pretty good Eberron example. Oh yeah, that tells you everything you need to know. And the uh, GM instructions for the enemy at the end are, she tries to get on top of the lightning rail carriage where she has more room to maneuver and throw people off. Yeah. That's what you should be doing. <laughs> All right. Chapter five. Magic items. There aren't a ton. I thought there would be more. There are actually some magic items of Wayfinders that are not in this. Yeah. Um, they have left out many of the common magic items. Yeah. And there's not even an item for every dragon mark in this book. There are some items for some dragon marks. Mm-hmm. So actually, the thing that people might be most excited about is that there are quite a few, I think like half a dozen symbionts made by the Dalkir. Yeah. And anyone can tune to them. Right. The The rarity goes up to legendary, and these are cursed magic items you might be happy to be cursed by. Yeah. Uh, but also, the legendary one you probably don't want to be cursed by. <laughs> <laughs> And they are typical, like, creepy Cthulhu-esque Dalkir items made of, like, bone and chitin and, like, pulsing muscle that you attach to yourself. Like, a whip that is made of a tentacle that attaches to your wrist, uh, I believe the book says, painfully. Mm -hmm. Uh, An earworm that translates things into deep speech for you. It is a worm that you put in your ear. (laughs) There are... Typical items that you'll find in different places in Sharn and metropolitan places in, in Corvair, right? Like key charms to open Kundaric safes, the aforementioned feather token, cleansing stones, which are used in public restroom facilities. And you get a few Warforged items like the arm blade and the docent. Uh, but the docent is actually kind of cool. Like it's it's pretty random, um, but like it gives you some languages. The, the docent gives you some skills. Um, and then it can also cast a spell, either detect evil and good or detect magic. All sort of the outcome is randomly determined of which one it actually has. Um, but it is an intelligent magic item mm-hmm. that you attune to that like does the work for you if you're cool. And if you suck, it doesn't. Yeah, and they may have their own goals. The, the docent has always been a nice way to give a Warforge uh, an intelligent companion that is just sort of like teaching the child things that it's supposed to know right it's the warforged parent basically <laughs> yeah uh we get the same eldritch machines that we got in wayfinders like the aforementioned me- weapons of mass destruction <laughs> and then some actual rules on how to buy or craft common magic items it's pretty easy and it's pretty cheap so that's good so then chapter six is the bestiary friends and foes um that includes sort of rounds out a lot of the lore, in my opinion. Yeah. It opens with this full color image of a monk attacking a member of the order of the Emerald claw. I'll say this. I don't, I don't particularly like the art style of it, but she's a monk and it it calls out like she has a prosthetic arm. Why? No particular reason. And monk, a monk probably wouldn't even need it, but she just has it, which she probably lost in the war. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's on a lightning train, so yeah, <laughs> they're going to go on the roof, <laughs> right? Also, the roof is made of glass. It's <laughs> even better. I would never travel by lightning rail in Ebron. It's too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. 
So the first monsters you get, the Dalkir. In third edition, I think there was just one generic stat block for a Dalkir. Uh, and they were CR20. But now we get individual stat blocks for two different ones. Belashira, the Lord of Eyes, and Dern the Corrupter. Spoiler, it sure would have been nice to have both of these in our Eberron games. Yeah, you think? <laughs> I'm kind of <laughs> like, oh boy. All right. Why why did you stat all the things that I used? <laughs> right. <laughs> so how how since you have used both of these as characters, um, how did you think their stat blocks compared to how you had envisioned them from like kind of prior editions and, and lore? I think they're actually pretty good. Like Belashira has an attack that causes exhaustion, which is exactly what I sort of hit upon as like her unraveling your being, you know? Um, mm-hmm. She uses a bunch of eye rays, terrifying eye rays. And, and I, I love that just one of her static regular abilities that you can't get rid of is she can see out of any creature's eyes within 120 feet. Oh, yeah. There's a... There's also like just the sort of the lair effects um, of her like being present mm-hmm. <laughs> that causes a bunch of weird stuff for people. Uh, I like that there's a random Dalkir modifications table. Like what might a Dalkir have done to the creatures that live near it? It's re- hair is replaced by spines or tentacles, extra limbs. Uh, it's been fused with another creature. We've seen all of those in bestiaries before. Mm-hmm. And this is actually one thing that I find really interesting. You were talking about lore. In the section on Dern the Corrupter, it gives new, basically canonical origins for doppelgangers, lycanthropes, and mind flayers. Doppelgangers are actually corrupted changelings. Lycanthropes are corrupted shifters, and mind flayers are corrupted gith. Oh, that's interesting because the the canonical like belief in Eberron is the reverse, right? right? That all of those races are descendants from those like sort of monsters. And that's why they face, you know, prejudice and purges and things like that. Exactly. Um, it, it's sort of like in Lord of the Rings, right? Like uh, Sauron, or I guess it was Morgoth, actually takes the elves and then corrupts them. And that creates the orcs. And that's why elves and orcs hate each other. This sets up a nice thing where, like, changelings might actually hate doppelgangers more than anybody does. And, you know, we've we've sort of covered a bit of, like, shifter, lycanthrope enmity before. But this gives, like, a really solid reason for it. And Belashira is CR 23, and Dern is CR level 24. They've got lair actions, and if you spend too much time nearby, you're going to need to save versus permanent madness. Uh, <laughs> the flaw stays until cured. Womp womp. Doesn't say how to cure it, though. Nope. Guess that's going to be a plot point. All right, we get a couple dinosaurs. You're welcome, druids and halflings. The clawfoot, which is, what, a velociraptor? Yeah, and the fast teeth, who is the, like, fast velociraptor, I guess. <laughs> right, the riding dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. We get Dolgrims and Dolgaunts. They're pretty low level. These are corrupted goblins and hobgoblins, which are super growths and have multiple mouths and lots of tentacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a new hag. I love new hags. I do, too. I, I'm so Hags are so my jam now that I read uh, Volo's Guide. They totally turned me around on the whole concept. But anyway, that is the Dusk Hag, who is the uh, prophetic nightmare hag. Yeah, she has some cool sleep abilities and then like does extra stuff to unconscious creatures. I, I like mm-hmm. the idea that you, have, you fought a Dusk Hag and had no idea that you did. Because the first thing she did was 98 sleep spell. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then like, when you woke up an hour later, you had one third of your hit points. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and none of your dreams left. <laughs> um, there is a uh, homunculus. Um, so actually, there's a couple different things in here that are just the you know accoutrement of uh, artificers, but in NPC form rather than PC form. So Iron Defenders now are listed under Homunculi. This is one thing I really like about this book is if you're if you've played Eberron for a while, there are so many like familiar faces where you're just like, oh hey, there you are. Like, hey, it's Belashira. Oh look, the Iron Defender. It, it's just so nice, kind of leafing through this. I mean, like I remember you from all of my third and fourth edition books. I do find it a little bit weird, and maybe. Maybe this is my pedantry, but for quite a while in an adventuring career, the Iron Defender will be better than the Steel Defender. Probably the Battlesmith is spending most of their time, you know, smashing things with weapons rather than fully tinkering solely mm-hmm. on yep. the Steel Defender. Right. Wait, wait, is, is your problem just because Steel is stronger than Iron? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. I agree with your criticism. <laughs> I mean, because the Iron Defender is CR1, uh, which means until you're like third or fourth level, the Iron Defender is better. Mm -hmm. And actually, frankly, straight up, probably much longer than that. Uh, We get an Inspired, which is actually pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty low level. CR2 It's basically like a slightly stronger Kalistar, but they get different abilities based on which kind of quarry is inhabiting them. I love that. Yeah, so some of it is like suggestion, other is like fear um then there's the arcane eye version there's a block for a karnathi undead soldier it's just a generic soldier which is interesting because the picture of the soldier is a skeleton but it has undead fortitude which only zombies get but whatever it is a heavily armored skeleton yeah it's two weapon fighter okay (laughs) yeah I, i will say it's a cr3 zombie which implies that Karnath's army was very like elite, right? Yeah. Like because like most of like Thrain's army were just like commoners that mm-hmm. were loosely trained militia led by Templars who were warrior NPCs, right? Like not even classes. Right. Please bring your farm implements. Right. But, you know, the imp- the implication of being a CR3 monster for Karnath is that like four level three adventurers would be somewhat challenged by them. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's a, that's a lot of scale is what I'm saying. And then we get lady Ilmero. Is this, this isn't the first time we've heard this name in this book, but this is, this book is the first time I've heard this name because she's actually lady Vol or Randis Vol, the last bearer of the mark of death and a high level lich. <laughs> oh Yeah. She's stronger than she has been in previous editions, and I like it. She's a 20th level spellcaster here, whereas she, she used to be a 17th level wizard. And like just straight up, there's no canon way to kill her. She can't even kill herself if she wanted to. That's her whole problem, right? Right. She has the mark of death and can't die. Yeah, and, and can't come back to life because she'd have to destroy her phylactery in order to die and then be resurrected. And she's kind of a beast. I mean, 9th level spells... Full complement, regeneration, all the regular lich stuff, which includes an at-will paralyze attack, and if she wants, an at-will green dragon poison breath weapon. 
Uh, unfortunately, she doesn't have any shape-shifting Ishin, so uh, your stories are not canon. She's got uh, lots of magic. Lots and lots of magic. This is her uh, combat loadout. Her combat build? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do think a lot of these um, stat blocks are the the combat loadout because For sure. you look at some of the spellcasters and they're actually different from well actually yeah i'll skip ahead to the rakshasa it's mordekesh a cr15 lord of dust rakshasa who's the prakutu for rakchu kesh um he gets legendary actions he gets a warlord ability but um he doesn't have like for example plane shift which the regular stock rakshasa does because that's not helpful in a fight Right, right. Well, I mean, it is because you can actually target Kill, unwilling right. creatures. But it's not helpful in a fight that is good and fun for the party. <laughs> right. Or like, oh, good, my fighter just dies. Right. <laughs> um, so catching back up to Mordekesh, we have also living spells, uh, which are constructs that are basically themed after certain spells. So Burning Hands, Lightning Bolt, and Cloud Kill are all in the in the spells. Uh, in the stat blocks, but then there are also like it gives you rules like which block to use based on what level of spell that you're uh, creating living. Yeah, I love that it's not just you know fifty different stat blocks. I think previous books have had just pages and pages of how, here's how a living spell looks. It's just two pages of here's how you make one yourself. Go for it. Right. We get the actual Lord of Blades. He feels like the Lord of Blades to me. Um, I think there there is a canonical CR12 version of him, I think from 3rd edition. He's stronger than he used to be. He's a high-level artificer, multi-class fighter. He's a, he's a melee beast. He has a bunch of multi-attacks, and he has legendary actions, and a lot of those legendary actions are do a bunch of attacks. Yeah, I think what he's missing is the durability that you usually associate with the Lord of Blades. He only has, he's less than 200 hit points and no reliable resistances. And he's an artificer, but he didn't take any healing spells. Or I guess in this case, repair spells, right? Repair Why spells, not? Yeah. It, it's to make him a, a better, more interesting fight rather than like he runs away and then heals himself. Sure. Yeah, I, sure. I, I mean, he is going to, he's going to kill people, right? He's definitely um, going to kill people. But it's not going to be a long fight. Right. Like you're, you're going to burn out quickly. You're going to throw everything you can at him immediately. Yeah. And you, and you have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only the only thing I don't like about a stat block is he doesn't have his bane arrows anymore. You know, he used to hate uh, like regular humanoids who weren't warforged. So he have like, oh, I've got a couple of half elf bane arrows and a couple of human bane arrows, et cetera, et cetera. Oh no, he doesn't have his bane arrows. <laughs> oh no. How do you feel about that, Shane? I feel great. <laughs> Screw him. Hate that guy. Shot me with a bane arrow once. <laughs> he did do that. Um, we also get stat blocks for two different overlords. Holy crap, overlords. Shane, these are CR28 fiends. These are some of the highest level enemies that we've gotten in the entire game thus far. The only ones higher are Tiamat and the Tarask. They're up there for sure. Um, and I think like having Rock Tool Cash is definitely the right one to put front and center. Mm-hmm. Right, I think he is the simplest and most straightforward of like you know leaning into the last war as a major theme of this book and everything like being the rage of war Mm -hmm. um like i think that's fitting so it's cool to see him even though like he's not necessarily new to me because he was featured of course in our morning glory campaign right uh his name now is rack tool rather than Raoul tool like it used to be 
fine, whatever. One thing I don't like about the Overlord stat blocks is they don't have any layers and they don't have any regional effects. I guess I can get why they don't have layers because they're supposed to be like trapped in Kyber, but they should have regional effects because that's their whole point is that they're subtly influencing the area around where they're trapped. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe they're supposed to be subtler than like regional effects, right? You could kind of pinpoint them all if you could just track where things start getting weird. Yeah. They've both got huge saving throws and attack bonuses. Uh, Rack Toolkesh has at will dispel magic, at will spirit guardians, and a weapon aura. It is hard to get up close to him. And he's got four attacks, melee are ranged. Uh, both overlords can also just change shape at will into humanoids, beasts, or giants. I, I like that, you know, if you are fighting one, maybe they just show up as a giant. And you're like, really? Just a storm giant? Really? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, <laughs> you also have this problem of like, they basically have infinite hit points, right? Right. Yeah, you can't actually kill them permanently. Right. Sul Katesh is the other overlord who is the Keeper of Secrets and the Queen of Shadows. Uh, this is not an overlord that I was familiar with before uh, reading the stat block. So I, what's your what's your take on her? I think canonically she is trapped under Arcanics in Ondaerr. Uh, so that could be fun if she if she pops up and also what are they researching there uh Mm. she is not melee focused so like take the fight to her but (laughs) she's got a dc 26 spell save at will counter spell at will dispel magic at will fireball lightning bolt and shield that's what she's doing Mm -hmm. like without even using any of her well not spell slots but like high level stuff it's just pew 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 plus she's got foresight and power word kill right yeah it's it this is not a uh these are not spell slots these are just ninth level spells per day right and like she can do both (laughs) foresight and power word kill right Uh, she has eat magic abilities where it's actually really bad if you are a um, spellcaster who's concentrating on a spell and she can suck spell slots out of your head and make you hurt other people right i love this ability she has arcane cataclysm she fires giant orbs and they land kind of like a, a meteor storm. Uh, and then they create anti-magic fields anywhere within a mile. <laughs> and also a pile of damage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she also has teleport on her spell list. Right. So. Mm-hmm. so next up, we get a stat block for Quarry. I think notable, they're aberrations now. Right, rather than fiends. Um, I know Keith Baker has some feelings about that. And I think either one still makes sense. Uh, they usually get charm person at will and they can all possess people. I like this. It's a recharge ability and they just disappear and then are in somebody's head and controlling their actions. Right. Um, so you get three kinds. There's the Sukora, who are the soldiers. They're like CR7. The Hashalak, which is the lore keeper, which is CR9. And then the Kalarak, which is the leader. Um, those are CR 19. So you are able to kind of pace your quarry adventures, uh, the full length of your campaign. Yeah. And Calarac in the stat block is the return of the infamous mind seed ability. Although I don't actually like it because it'll mind seed somebody. And then they become basically a thrall. Once they are reduced to six levels of exhaustion, gaining an additional level every day. But what that means is, like, the mind seed's supposed to be super secret. So if you mind seed someone, then they basically almost die for, like, a week. 
and then they're just fine and now their personality is different and gee i wonder who the mind seed is right um also like it's really easy to deal with given that it's cr19 like it's just remove curse or greater restoration to fix this in the first you know five days of collecting exhaustion uh, by the way the way that you quickly heal exhaustion is greater restoration so um if you are powerful enough to have you know good healing for friends um or just like anybody from jurasco you're fine yeah i mean the way to play them is to just bounce around possessing different people right right then we get the radiant idol which is a fallen angel uh they committed the sin of wanting to be worshipped I wish they had the just the little bit of lore tidbit where they can't fly anymore because Syriana has rejected them for their hubris. Mm. And so, like, they can't fly. They, they can't basically ever leave the ground. You get some stat blocks for the deathless slash undead members of the Undying Court, uh, the gods of Arenal. Although they're, I mean, they're, they're collective gods, right? So these are pretty low level. CR2 and CR10. We then get a paramour of Fae. Uh, these are the Valinar animals. They are basically beasts, um, but they are subtype Fae. Yeah, and like bred to be a little bit better by the Valinar elves. And then here are the stats for the Warforged Colossus, which you should combine with the map from earlier. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if someone else gets into it and is controlling it, here's how you fight it. It also comes with the list of locations of all the the known colossi. Um, I will say not all of them explain why the Lord of Blades isn't after them, but that's okay. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. And then last you have the Warforged Titan. Um, this is the sort of like the Dreadnought version of Warforged, right? They're like a CR8, pretty powerful Warforged. Mm-hmm. So you can run a Lord of Blades game if you want, and he's got lots of minions to choose from now. Okay, so then we get to the appendices and the index. Which don't exist. Right. This is, isn't this a thing that's been happening with these books lately? It's just like, that's the last stop block, and now here's the end of the book. This is, this is bad. Agreed. Um, like, especially because so much of this lore is just cross-mentioned in, like, odd sections. Like, I, I'm running into this problem with Band of Blades. Um, is that there is a lot of lore in the book, but there, it's not organized in like a lore dump. It's just kind of like fed into like bits of the campaign or into bits of the story of like this NPC. And this has the same problem, except that this is a you know AAA flagship product from the biggest company in role playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have paid somebody to index this. It would be super useful if they had. Uh, instead, like I will probably end up using this book as a D&D Beyond supplement because at least I can search for the thing I'm looking for. Yeah, we would have indexed it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pay us to index it. I know. <laughs> so what do you think of the way that the book looks? Some of the art is good. Mm-hmm. Some of the art is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has no unified style, and that at times is very jarring. And... I am happy to be back in Eberron, but I am very frustrated by that fact. Like, it feels like we got a slightly half-assed version of it. Uh, I am disappointed that I see some art that I recognize from previous editions, and it was bad then. Mm -hmm. Why did you put it back in? So, there are actually 
four sources of art in here, at least. Third edition, fourth edition, new fifth edition art. And then there are also novel covers. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, the paperback version of a novel in a grocery store. Um, those always are painted to look like photographs. It stands out so starkly that I saw a picture, pointed it out to you, was like, was that from a book? Do you remember that? And then I was like, I bet it's a novel. Sure enough, it's a novel. Oh, man, you pay so much for this book. And then, like, to get the recycled art is just frustrating. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, recycle it, fine, but, like, to to not unify the styling on it is just, like, uh, it's it's annoying. Yeah. It also could have used one more pass with a copy editor. There are definitely a couple places where I noticed uh, there's a word missing. Uh, and also like pretty glaringly right at the beginning on the page of languages, it says that the common language of all fiends is abyssal. They've changed that, right? So all fiends speak the same language now, except in the chart, they've listed infernal as the language that fiends speak. Whoops. All on the same page. I don't know what the answer is to that. I'm pretty sure it's infernal though, right? It's supposed to be infernal. <laughs> It would make a lot more sense. Uh, the devils weren't like, oh, yeah, let's use the of the demons. Right. I I don't know. I remember seeing like a couple of places where the wrong preposition was used, mm-hmm. right? Like it was like of instead of by or whatever. And it's just like it's the it's just a little sloppy. Agreed. All right. So here it is. Do you have a verdict on whether this book is a buy or a pass? I would say that. This book feels the least like I'm obligated to buy the whole thing, even though I only want a part of it, right? This is the first time we've gotten a proper campaign setting. So if you are interested in playing in that campaign setting, this is a really good book to buy. Um, So if that is the sole consideration for you, then I would say, yes, if Eberron sounds interesting, buy this book. Yeah, you look at Sword Coast Adventures Guide, and if you want to play a Forgotten Realms game, well, you better not wander off the tiny map. Right. Because you have no idea what's out there. That is maybe the worst campaign setting. And this, you get everything you need for Corvair. Like, I don't need another Corvair book. You know, if there are other Eberron books in the future, give me another continent or give me the planes. Right. This is quite thorough, it is a lot of information. Um, it could be better organized, but I mean, even if I wasn't running a 5e Eberron game, this is a, a good book to have. There are stat blocks that are useful for anybody. There are rules useful for anybody, uh, and everything is is quite reflavorable. This is quite high up there in my list of 5e books, like in the order that I might buy them. Yeah, I would put this up there with Xanathar's, Xanathar's. right? Yeah. But what if you already own? wayfinders so i think the answer is still you probably need to buy this it just sucks yeah you should still get this one you have a right to be angry that you still need to get this one yeah like i i don't think the commercial reality of wizards of the coast being unwilling to put this book out until they saw sales of wayfinders should detract from this book though it certainly doesn't make me happy at wizards of the coast that they have done this and now I'm buying the same content in large part twice. Right. And on top of that, Wizards did promise that people who bought Wayfinders would get the Artificer once it was added. It turns out they are only getting the Alchemist subclass. This is... Uh, I hate this. This is... 
that is just uh, that just feels bad. It is punishing people who wanted this the most. Right. And then demonstrated that they wanted it the most. Now, the end product, like just looking at this book, this is a great book. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's frustrating. But yeah, unfortunately, I think I would I would say that you just have to buy it twice. Um, but I, I think it's worth it is worth the cost of just this book for certain. I agree. That is perhaps the most um, downtrodden buy recommendation we've ever ga- given, given how much I actually like the contents of this book. Right. I'm actually frustrated that I have to be like, uh, yeah, it's a buy. Like it should be like, oh my God, this is one of the best books in 5e. This is a buy. Finally, they have made a complete book that does exactly what it is supposed to do for all of the audiences and doesn't waste a whole bunch of content for half of the purchasers. Right. Like this is the good book. Right. And make yet- your future campaign settings like this. Right. Just add an index. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, go check it out. I don't know. I am disappointed that we have finished a second Eberron campaign before this came out, but uh, maybe we'll have to have a third. Guess we'll see. Lazar Pirates. Never going to happen. <laughs> All right. So before we go, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with we us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And don't forget, join the conversation on Discord. Link in the show notes. We also want to take a moment and say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about playing pulp adventures, maybe, for example, in Eberron. And in the character creation forge? We're building the melee mage. Can you guess what subclass we are using? (laughs) All right, that's it for episode 225 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Bits Before Crits. The people at the Bits Before Crits podcast just finished an actual play of the piratical adventure game, 7th C. This season of Bits Before Crits is an easily bingeable bite-sized campaign of pirates and monsters. Check out this clip that they shared with us. Are you saying that wasn't thunder? We must have hit something. It's the Kraken. Oh, don't, don't say that. Why would you put that into the world? I mean, I just, I just really want to see a Kraken. It has so many tentacles. Oh, and gosh. All oh. phrases his hand says, no, you don't. Oh, oh, you jokester yet again. Terrifying. Really? Always wanted to see a Kraken. I really hope it's a Kraken. I, I hope it's not a Kraken. I hope it's a dolphin or maybe a whale. Whales are nice. Except the big ones. Like the really big ones. Kraken, 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 Kraken. Pasha closes her eyes. You peer into the dark waters Mm -mm. and you see a dark shape about 10 feet wide. Kraken, Kraken. It's a whale. No. Kraken, Kraken. And two yellow eyes staring upward. Kraken? So to find out what's in the water, check out Bits Before Crits, wherever you're listening now.